Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 43. Uh, This week, we have everybody here. We have Sarah Gladys, Mark, and myself, Michael. And we have a guest here this week, Liz Kim, who's here to talk to us about Azure Policy. Uh, But before we get to Liz, let's take a quick lap around the news. I'll kick things off. A couple of things caught my eye over the last couple of weeks. First one, um, it's kind of interesting. It's in App Service and Azure Functions. They now have the ability to configure basically an arbitrary OpenID connector. Um, Historically, you could only authenticate to say Azure AD, Facebook, Google, or Twitter. Actually, I see now they've got Apple in there as well, which is kind of interesting. But now you can uh, essentially set up a, any OpenID connector you wish, which is, uh, which is really cool to see. Uh, it gives a lot, of, a lot of flexibility there. I've been doing a lot of work over the last few weeks, actually, in Azure Functions and um, OpenID Connect and OAuth 2, getting right into the bowels of uh, sort of spelunking o, uh, OAuth 2 to- tokens. Uh, definitely wouldn't recommend it. But anyway, it's great to see that we can now essentially configure any kind of OpenID connector. The other thing um, that I noticed is, and I think I actually sort of touched on this a few weeks ago, but we now have some new uh, virtual machines that support uh, confidential compute. Uh, These are called the Azure, wait for it, they have the DCAS version 5 and the ECAS version 5. These uh, support things like uh, always encrypted memory, uh, they support uh, things like virtual TPMs, trusted platform module. Uh, they also support things like secure encrypted virtualization, secure nested paging. Uh, try saying that one quickly a few times. Uh, but this is great to see. Uh, they're both AMD and Intel CPUs. Uh, so this is really great to see. Again, this is all about encryption of data in use, um, not just encryption of data at rest or encryption of data on the wire. So I'm a huge fan of the, the whole confidential compute uh, initiative. And it's good to see that we have these, uh, these new VMs. The last item I want to bring up in public preview, there is now an Azure Bastion native client. This is actually really cool. I've been sort of experimenting with it just recently. But you can basically connect to your target Azure virtual machines via Bastion from the Azure CLI, like from from the command line, like on on a native client. So... I'll just open up Windows Terminal because I know everyone's using Windows Terminal. You've ditched you know, the command prompt and using Windows Terminal now. I can open up Terminal, connect to Azure with a saved connection, and I can go straight through uh, Azure Bastion. This is really, really nice. Uh, you can also log into Azure Active Directory, join virtual machines using your AAD credentials. Okay, so let's see. What has caught my eye this time? Uh, Defender for Cloud, uh, what uh, the product previously formerly known as Azure Defender and Azure Security Center. There's a ton of GA updates, the name change. Um, it's always nice to remind people of that. But really cool is the native CSPM, which is Cloud Security Posture Management, if you're not familiar with that acronym, for AWS and Threat Protection for Amazon EKS, which is their Kubernetes service and EC2, which is the virtual machines. So now if you're using some AWS and but you've also got Defender for Cloud, then you can actually look at their posture management for those products, which is very cool. Um, so you can do it across Azure and other clouds. Uh, we've also expanded the security control assessments with the Azure Security Benchmark version 3. Um, so if you're using Hygiene um, in Defender for Cloud, there's um, an update to the security benchmark. Also, the Sentinel connector bidirectional alert synchronization. Uh, So basically, if there's an alert raised in Defender for Cloud, it will also raise it in Sentinel for you and sync between the two. That's now GA. Uh, So for those of you who are waiting for it to go GA, it is there. 
We've also got new recommendations around AKS, the Azure Kubernetes service. Um, our recommendations have now uh, been the security recommendations are mapped to MITRE ATT&CK framework that's gone GA. Um, so a lot of GA things here as well. Um, I'll link in the show notes because I'll just go on forever. Um, but there's a lot of things that have gone GA. So if you're one of those businesses that doesn't uh, use things until they've gone GA, there's a lot of new things in Defender for Cloud. Next, I definitely mentioned this when it went public preview, but now it's GA again. So for those of you who are waiting for things to go GA, um, AKS, you can now create AKS clusters without local user accounts. So of course, local user accounts are generally not a good thing on anything. Um, we want them to be um, you know, synced up to a centralized identity provider. Um, so now um, that is available in AKS. Going on to a public preview though, Express Route Private Peering, which I am definitely going to struggle to say for the rest of this, is now supporting the use of BGP communities with virtual networks. So if you're using um, BGP communities, um, you can now actually get the Express Route Private Peering to uh, use that as well, which is uh, very nice, if, particularly if you have a large environment. There's also GA for the centralized management of keys for encrypting Azure disks. So um, you can now manage Azure your key vault centrally in a sim single subscription and the keys stored in key vault to encrypt managed disks and snapshots and use those keys to encrypt managed disks and snapshots in other subscriptions in your organization, which is really nice because it means that, of course, you can centrally manage your security policy. Azure App Service, they've got now a diagnostic settings feature that's gone GA. So what that means is if you're using Azure App Service, um, the Azure diagnostic settings is now generally available. Um, diagnostic settings can be sent to log analytics. Uh, it can be sent to a storage account. And of course, it can be sent to uh, Sentinel as well. So the kind of logs that are coming out of the Azure App Service are the App Service console logs, App Service HTTP logs, App Service environment platform logs, Audit logs, uh, file audit logs, service app logs, service app IPsec audit logs, and service platform logs. So uh, definitely get logging those somewhere because uh, you should probably be um, logging them for operational and or security operations um, if you're using Azure App Service. And then Logic Apps, love a bit of Logic Apps. Um, of course, um, we've got the fall or autumn, I'm going to say autumn 2021 release of um, Azure Logic Apps. So we're always building on the cool things you can do with Logic Apps. Of course, you can use it throughout. Um, there's various different products uh, that use Logic Apps, um, including my baby Sentinel. Some of the cool things we're doing is that you can now use SQL as a storage provider rather than just a storage account. We're also having more things within Logic Apps support managed identity rather than having to use a specific user account. And we're also making the, the Logic Apps designer better. Um, it's getting a major refresh. And we're also having some more plans. So there is a consumption plan and a standard plan. Uh, and you're going to be able to export between the two, which is something you couldn't previously do. So definitely go and check out the um, new things in Logic Apps if it's something you use. And then finally, of course, we will move on to my baby, which is Sentinel. A couple of things that's worth highlighting, of course, 
Lots of things were announced at Ignite last month, but a couple of things I wanted to highlight is you can now ingest GitHub logs into your Sentinel workspace. So if you're using uh, if you're using GitHub and you want to uh, do threat monitoring on it, as you should if you are using it, we've now got a native solution to be able to do that. And the other thing that's gone public preview is that is definitely worth mentioning because it's very very popular is the S3 um, Amazon Web Services S3 connector. So if you've got logs going into S3, um, into your AWS S3 bucket, we now have a connector that can pick them up off there. Um, so we can bring in VPC throw, flow logs, guard duty, and CloudTrail. Now we do have, and we have had for some time, a different AWS CloudTrail connector that just uses the um, API coming from AWS. But I know I've worked with customers who that connector doesn't work for them. Sometimes we, there are limits on the AWS CloudTrail API um, that is a limitation on the AWS side. And sometimes we've had customers that can't get all the logs out properly um, because they just generate too many CloudTrail logs. So it's really great now because we completely bypass that API with this new connector. Uh, I know a lot of customers have been waiting for it. So go and have a look. And then the last thing, which is, there's actually some more Sentinel things, but this is one I know that a lot of people were asking for. We uh, now have our Windows Forwarded Events Connector. Now, it did have a different iteration a while back, but now our Windows Event Collection and Windows Event Forwarding is all supported through this new data connector. You also have to use the Azure Monitor Agent, the AMA, in order to do this, but I know a lot of customers wanted us to be able to support Windows Event Forwarding because they'd already got that solution set up and then it was better than having to install an agent everywhere. So it is now here. So go check that out. It is still public preview, but I know a lot of folks are waiting for it because a lot of you already have Windows WEF stuff and WEF infrastructure. So now you can go and do that. And that was a very big news chunk from me. That's the, that's, the, that's the longest news you've ever had. I think it's the longest news anyone's ever had. I know. I just I just wanted to just so much news before Christmas. Yeah. So I'll uh, I'll go quick. So yeah, the one thing I just want to highlight, sort of as a as a meta point within uh, within a lot of Sarah's news, like I, I love that we're GAing features that are you know have it both you know Azure and AWS support, like the the Defender for Kubernetes stuff, right out the gate. I think that's that's awesome, and it really reflects you know how Microsoft is is really supporting what customers are running, which is multi cloud. The big thing on my side is uh, something that I'm working on. It's uh, it may be released by the time you hear this podcast. Really trying to get it out in the next uh, few days uh, within recording this. The uh, new cyber reference architecture with the updated product names and a few fun little surprises on some sequences that we added there um, will be coming out very shortly. And uh, so definitely check that out. The AKMS slash MCRA. Um, let's try saying that uh, well 12 times fast. And so that is coming very soon and possibly out by the time you hear me. I'm so glad that um, Sarah and Michael and even Mark uh, provided so much information because I just came back from uh, vacation and I forgot everything that I, I knew before. But uh, this week I've been working heavily with Defender for Identity. I found out that soon we will have uh, automation for incident uh, response uh, going on public preview. Although uh, the changes uh, will not take effect immediately, um, there's research going on for changes that uh, this automation uh, will provide to speed up. For example, if, if the automation wants to disable a user or reset a password or perform some other type of task. An option, if 
the um, analysts do not want to wait uh, for the changes to take effect um, is to use uh, Azure AD identity protection, which um, op- opens seeing certain risks such as anonymous IP address use, atypical travel, unfamiliar signing, leak credentials or, or credentials being found uh, to be sold on, on the dark web, password spray or others, uh, then uh, certain uh, actions uh, will take place, uh, such as prompting for Azure AD uh, MFA or resetting the password itself. The one thing uh, for this is that you need Azure AD identity protection, which is part of Azure AD P2 uh, license. In addition, you could consider using a conditional access, continue access evaluation. So upon seeing certain risk, uh, you could trigger re-verification of the session. Um, and, and this will happen whether the user just sign in like 10 minutes ago or um, a, it, and during that, those 10 minutes, the health of that session uh, has changed. So please uh, take a look about uh, those automation that uh, Defender for Identity uh, will be providing soon. I think uh, I heard that they're turning them on by the end of the year. And talking about sign-in risks, uh, we're adding uh, new proactive detections uh, to stay ahead of both uh, common and emerging attacks vectors. Um, as mentioned earlier, we checked on, on anonymous IP address, atypical trouble, and, and so on. But now we are adding detection for anomalous talking, talking issues, anomaly, unfamiliar signing uh, properties for uh, session cookies and, and others. Basically, we are trying to address uh, token-related attacks uh, like the ones uh, observed with solar winds. And finally, I wanted to briefly talk about OT and IoT. Uh, Microsoft recently announced a partnership with CoreLight, uh, which is one of the in- industry uh, open network detections and response platform for IoT to integrate with Defender for IoT. Um, the reason that I wanted to focus on that is that one of the problems with IoT industry or of many vendors is that they have closed network solution. Um, so in order to have end-to-end coverage of all OT and IoT devices, uh, sometimes you must buy just uh, the full platform of those vendors. Well, Microsoft, with uh, the partnerships that it is doing with Coraline, now not only can provide detection of IoT, OT uh, devices through the network sex- sensor, but also now uh, it can get information from uh, partners like Coraline. In addition, uh, for those of you that are not aware, Defender for Endpoint also uh, monitors and reports on any OT, IoT devices. So we're trying to provide a full coverage uh, that not only enables OT, IoT, but also then there could be correlation between IT and reduce blind spot that attacker may take advantage when trying to jump from one environment to another. Yeah, this is the longest news section I think we've ever had. We're, we're running at almost 20 minutes. That's the longest we've ever had. So now that we've got that out of the way, uh, let's introduce our guest. This week we have Liz Kim, uh, who is here to talk to us about Azure Policy. So Liz, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We'd like to spend a moment just to sort of introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you for including me here. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I'm Liz. I'm a program manager on the Azure Control Plane team. 
the control plane team essentially has ARM and all the governance services like Azure Policy, Azure Resource Graph, Management Groups, Change History, Tags, those number of things. I'm responsible for the Azure Policy product. I've been driving it since the very beginning of the launch. Uh, we launched it as a public preview about four years ago. I think we're right on the four-year uh, four mark since our launch. And I've been with Microsoft for eight and a half years. So before Azure Policy, I worked on Azure Log Analytics. And before then, I was on uh, System Center. Very nice. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be brutally honest before we get stuck into this. Um, I'm a huge Azure Policy nerd. Um, and this podcast may actually devolve into just a, uh, a Liz and Michael discussion. So unless uh, someone else pipes up with questions, I'm just going to keep on going. You know, I'm, I'm a huge Azure Policy fan. I just... I just, I just adore the. I just think it's fantastic. I mean, from a governance perspective, the fact that I can put you know really strict rules in place. I mean, one of my favorite rules by far is you know preventing, say, for example, um, you know people spinning up resources in in regions that you know they don't want to spin resources up. You know, so if you're in East US two and West US and you don't want someone accidentally spinning up a resource in say you know, Germany, then uh, you know you can put policy in place to restrict that. But while so anyway, the the point is, you know, I'm just a huge nerd when it comes to policy. I'm just a, a huge, huge fan. So let's just start things off with the most simple thing because I think I think people need to understand exactly what policy is. And it's actually interesting when I speak to a lot of customers. It's interesting how many customers don't even know policy exists. That being said, I've also come across I've come across some customers who actually have had. I'll be honest with you. Let's just say an interesting experience with policy, and. I, and 99 times out of 100, it's because they, you know, they're doing it wrong. So I'd like to sort of address some of those issues if we can as we move through the podcast. So let's just start off with the absolute most basic of questions. And what on earth is Azure Policy? And when would, when would you use it? So Azure Policy is essentially about controlling your resource configurations and assessing the compliance results at scale. Um, you would be able to, you know, block resources that are non-compliant or auto-remediate these resources and then also get a compliance assessment of all your existing resources on uh, whether they're compliant or non-compliant against each of the, um, each of the policy um, that you have applied on your Azure environment. I said resource configurations earlier, but we are also expanding on controlling the uh, resource operations as well. And so in the future, uh, we would be able to control the operations that you do, such as, you know, delete or move operations um, at scale as well. Liz, can you explain some of the common use cases? Yeah, absolutely. So for any customers who are exploring with Azure Policy, generally, I recommend on them exploring the built-in initiatives that you, we have today. And by built-in initiative, what we mean is that, uh, you know, on day zero, when you go to Azure Policy Experience, we actually have a lot of policies already in there for you to easily get started with. And so examples of the things that we have in there, for example, would be uh, we have one for you to um, enable all of the monitoring agent across your VM and uh, VMSS. Or um, we also have one for uh, NIST 800 regulatory compliance requirements um, to evaluate not all, but a subset of the um, controls that are required for NIST, um, as well as for things like, uh, you know, you might want to control your VM SKUs for your non-production environment, um, that sort of deal. So 
a best way for you to really explore the uh, explore policy would be through the built-in initiatives. Uh, and uh, lastly, I think tags is also a common uh, use as well to make sure that you have the right tags applied. You can also use it to automatically inherit your tags from the resource group or from the re- uh, subscription. And so um, you could also use policy to uh, make sure that those tags are in place. Can you um, just give us a quick overview of perhaps one of the initiatives, you know, one of the example initiatives that you have? I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. When, I, when I've sort of worked with customers, most of the time we've just gone you know, straight in and just start you know, deploying policy. I mean, you know, we planned it out a little bit, but I know some customers who have used the initiatives, uh, but I actually haven't. Um, so can you give us an example of what one of these things might look like? Yeah, so initiative, actually, let me define an initiative first. Uh, initiative is just a grouping of policies. A policy controls a specific configurations on a given resource, and then you can group it for um, enabling it uh, across, you know, for um, a bigger effort going on. And so an example of an initiative might be there's one for making sure that you have all of the monitoring related agents enabled. And so, uh, you know, that essentially consists of number of policies to make sure that you have the MAA agent on your VM and your uh, on and your uh, VMSS dependency agent, uh, making sure that you cover both Windows and Linux VMs, that sort of deal. So that could be an example of an initiative. Uh, another initiative that we have uh, is, for example, the Azure Security Benchmark Initiative as well. And that covers all the security-related policies um, in that initiative as well. well. That's nice. I didn't know about that. Hey, Mike, did you know about that? Do you know that there's a, an initiative for the Azure Security Benchmark? Um, is that the one that's associated with, almost at Azure Security Center, with uh, Defender for Cloud? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if customers are on Azure Defender, it's actually already assigned on the customer's environment. Uh, we went through a migration from the Security Center initiative to the Security Benchmark initiative. Um, so it's already assigned to most of the customer environments. Awesome. Yeah, it's good to know. I, I, I did not know that, but it's actually it's really good to know. All right, let's get into some real nitty-gritty stuff. So, so I mentioned before that you know we're, we're a bunch of customers on policy, and look, I'm going to be I'm going to be upfront. I mean, it, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, and the reason is 99 times over 100. If it's a mixed bag, is because some things have not been planned very well, or people don't necessarily understand the implications of what they're doing, and then things start to break. And a lot of it boils down to two. From my perspective, anyway, if there's more to this, please, you know, let me know. There's two aspects to this. One is at what level in the hierarchy is an appropriate place to deploy policy. That's number one. The way I look at it, there's two aspects, right? You can deploy it really, really high up, say, you know, a subscription or management group or something. And that gives you like a single point of management or fewer points of management. The downside is you're going to push policy down to things where policy might not <laughs> might not be applicable. And I've always said to customers, there's really, in my opinion, there's like two sets of lowercase p policies. Some that are good ideas and some that you're willing to die on the hill for. In other words, some things that you're really never going to, going to allow. For, ex- for example, you know, restricting to specific regions, right? We're going to deploy this thing in, I don't know, let's just say, you know, East US 2 and uh, US West 2. And that's it. You know, we don't want to push it anywhere else in case of sovereignty issues. And that, that is one I'm willing to, you know, die on the hill for. But some, you know, you may not be, you know, so overly energetic about um, and they may affect some particular applications. So again, you can have it really, really high, push the policy down to absolutely everything underneath it and run the risk of potentially breaking things. Let's let's be honest, depending on what 
on what you're doing. The other option is to push it far down, like to resource groups or even individual resources. But now you've got a management explosion, right? Because now you've got all these things to manage and who can manage them and what sort of roles do those people have? So it's, it's this trade-off you've got to make. And a lot of it also boils down to the other sort of axis, which is the action, right? So there's different actions that you can perform and probably two of the most well-known um, probably the two that most people think about are the audit action, which is basically don't block it, but just say, hey, this event happened that it would, you know, it violates policy. And then the other one is deny. And at that point, you're blocking something. And that's what can cause, you know, from my perspective anyway, the combination of pushing a policy really high and then pushing deny all the way down through all the subscriptions. So for, so for example, you decide to deny um, a public IP address to a storage account. Well, what happens if you actually do have a valid reason to have a public IP address on a storage account, which can happen? So I realize kind of a, I'm not sure if there's a question in there, <laughs> um, but, but it's like, so what's your experience there? I mean, am I, you know, doing it wrong? Uh, are customers doing it wrong? Uh, is, is there some more nuance to this that I'm not, not familiar with? So you touch on a lot of different topics. Uh, let me try to uh, respond on one topic at a time. So I think First, when you touch on the kind of the scope at which the policy gets applied, our general recommendation is that you apply it at as a high of a scope as is applicable, and then use exemptions to exemptions or exclusion to uh, exclude the sub one sub resources or sub scope that are not applicable. And so, if you're trying to block all. Um, all outbound port, for example, on your non-production environment, then apply that policy on your non-production management group. And then if some resources or um, subscriptions uh, need exemption, you can create an exemption at that scope. That essentially allows you to be able to have the control over those environments and you know, still have the flexibility uh, for those special snowflakes. I think, Michael, another thing that I, you touched on um, that I would also love to dive into is kind of the different effects or different enforcement types that we have, right? So you touched on kind of the audit thing, audit policy effect, which allows you to create the resources, but we'll just flag it as non-compliant and give back the compliance result that is non-compliant, uh, or we will deny it. So you, you won't even be able to create that resource. First of all, before you apply any deny policies, our recommendation is first to always use it as an audit first and then switch over to a deny so that you at least have an idea of kind of what are the things that you're going to be blocking. Uh, we also you know, recommend customers to use our non-compliance reasons message so that you know, when someone gets blocked, they have a friendly message to um, read as to you know, like where they can get more info or where they can get exemptions, what the policy is for, that sort of deal. We also have auto-remediation effects as well. For customers who really want to make sure that, for example, I'm just going to use the earlier example on the update that Sarah gave on the uh, AKS disable local auth, right? Uh, let's say that you always want to make sure that the local auth is disabled by default, but you don't necessarily want the engineers to be bothered by it or to be you know, you want just these things to just happen by default without engineers having to be blocked and manually change it. We also have an auto remediation capability as well. And the cool thing that we do with modify effect specifically is that we actually intercept the request, append it so that it has the right property value, 
and then we let the request um, go through so that it's actually created. So by the time it's created, it has the right property value already in place. So you know, there's no security vulnerability that you expose um, by using a auto remediation capability. All right. So that gave me a bunch of questions. <laughs> so first of all, if I switch everything into audit, so action equals audit, um, where is that audit report? Is it in Defender for Cloud, what was formerly as a security sensor, or is it somewhere else? Because it needs to be in like a central place, right? So I can easily get to it. So there's two types of data that we produce for audit. Uh, there's the events information. So, you know, like when some when resource gets created and if it's audited, we'll drop an event. And that goes into Azure Activity Log. And then there's also the compliance state that we produce as well, right? So we'll say, oh, this resource is non-compliant. And that non-compliance data is available through the, um, first of all, we have our uh, API, Policy Insights API, that you can get that data from. We also route all that data over to Azure Resource Graph as well. And so you can query Azure Resource Graph for all of this data. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, the Resource Graph angle, that's, um, that's really cool. Okay, the other question I have that's follow on from that, I've got, by the way, I'll have one more after this, is what happens if I, let's say I have some storage accounts that have a public, uh, public IP address, and I decide at, say, the subscription level to deny public IP addresses for storage accounts. What happens to the existing storage accounts? A great question. So we don't actually, uh, you know, it's not like we delete the existing resources by default, right? So what we'll do is we will go and first scan all your existing resources. And for every resource that you have, we'll give a compliance state of compliant or non-compliant. And we produce that as a report. On the existing resources, um, they will we will not take any enforcement until that resource goes through an update. So you know, the next time that resource goes through a put or patch request, we will do the enforcement of deny, but otherwise we will let that resource be. If you rolled out a remediation policy, like a modify or deploy if not exist effects, then you also have an option of rolling out remediation on existing resources. And that, again, I recommend that you do a gradual rollout on these uh, remediations. Um, And so we have multiple knobs available in there so that you can just start remediating for resources in a particular region first, subscope first, we just released um, maybe two weeks ago or so um, on being able to do a per milli rollout as well. So you can do a percentage-based rollout as well. Um, and so you can also do a remediation on existing resources, but that again is a user action-based. We don't touch the existing resources uh, when you roll out deny policies, unless it goes through an update. When you say an update, so if I have a storage account that has a public IP address and there's a policy that says no public IP addresses on storage accounts, when you say goes through an update, you mean like if I modify like a setting on that storage account? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. When, yeah. Perfect. That's actually really cool. So that leads to my, my last question. Well, my last question until the other questions. So you said that you can have like an exemption or an exception mm-hmm. like below, like say for example, the subscription. So for example, let's say I have a resource group. What are the, what are the machinations of that? Like how can I, how do I, how do I set that up? So if I, I've got a, you know, let's say I've got, you know, uh, you know, company, company A, and they've got a, you know, a subscription and then there's a resource group that handles something really, really funky and really specific. And the, the development team says, we want to be able to 
set our own policies. You know, obviously we'll use some of the policies from the subscription where it makes sense, but there's like a couple of policies in there that do not make sense and will actually stop us from doing our business requirements. So we want to be able to override those. So what are the, what is that pro, there's two parts to it. One is what does that process look like? And second, who can do that? So let me answer the latter part first and then we'll get to the first part. Uh, so let's say in your example that the policies on the management group level. Uh, someone who's has an access to the resource group, like a you know, as an owner on the resource group or owner on the subscription, will not be able to create exemptions on that resource group. Uh, we do a linked access check to make sure that whoever's creating exemption also has permission on the assignment as well, which in this example would be management group scope. So they the application team will essentially need to go request the exemptions to the cloud center of excellence team or cloud architect team, security architect team, whoever has access at that management group scope. In terms of how you go about doing that, uh, we uh, we generally, from what we've observed, customers generally have a some kind of a ticketing processes or um, tools they have in place um, that they integrate the exemption creations into. And so that's actually the reason why we introduced exemption as a separate resource type. Aside from the, the not scopes or the exclusions we already had, which was a property on the assignment. So we introduced the exemption as a separate resource type precisely so that it's easy to plug into the existing tools that customers have. Um, and all that tool will do is essentially once that exemption request has been approved, create the exemption resource at that scope, at that resource group scope. And so um, the process side of the store is generally uh, customers already have a tool that they leverage today, and then they create the exemptions um, once approved. Can you talk to us a little bit, Liz, about some of the the new things coming up or or stuff we've recently released? Because, well, you know, with every single Microsoft product we have, we've always got tons of new things happening. So uh, what's exciting and new in the policy world? Yeah, so we have a lot going on on the um, Azure policy space. I think, uh, first of all, I touched on the ARG integration a little bit earlier, but uh, we are putting more and more of the Azure uh, policy resource types into Azure Resource Graph. So uh, we just finished on putting in the policy assignment definitions and um, definition sets into Resource Graph. So you can join that data with compliance data and produce you know, full report. That work is going on. And then up next on our ARG integration is putting in exemptions resource. Um, customers have been interested in putting together a view to figure out like oh, what are the exemptions that are approaching expiration, for example. And so you would be able to produce that report through Azure Resource Graph. Uh, we also have some um, investments going in on being able to do more with the policy expression you know, and, and the policy language. Um, I mentioned uh, earlier, but uh, we are about to release a deny-delete policy. That essentially is, uh, you know, kind of our first step in introducing a policy that's able to manage the operations on the resource. So with deny delete, you can essentially protect your critical resources to avoid accidental deletion on those. So the deny delete sounds a lot like resource locks. Is it similar to that? Is it new functionality? Does it provide extra functionality that resource locks don't normally provide? Yeah, so it's essentially just like resource lock, but at scale. So 
um, you know, you would be able to apply it across all of your management group to protect your resources. Um, also, another benefit that it provides is that, you know, the resource owner or subscription owner would not be able to override it, right? So, uh, you know, resource lock is something that the owner could just delete that lock and do the operation that they wanted. Um, but policy would essentially make it so that they have to go request the exemption uh, for them to override it. Yeah, I've always seen sort of resource locks as a bit of a, I mean, they, you know, they've served their purpose, but they're hardly as uh, as robust as something that's more complete like this, which is uh, which is good to see. You know, deniability is essentially the first thing that we're starting off with. And then you'll also see us expanding to other operations like blocking move operation or um, controlling things that can be done through post API, um, that sort of deal as well. The other sets of the um, investments that are coming on board is um, I'm going to touch on two things that I'm most excited about. One is we've had customer asks on wanting to extend policy valuations to also reference their own data sets, right? So for example, you know, a lot of customers have policy that controls the um, tags to make sure that you have cost center ID, but that cost center ID may not be a valid ID that you put in, right? And so Essentially, what we are supporting through custom data policy is that you can upload that data over to Azure and reference that data so that we can look that up uh, at runtime and do an enforcement accordingly. That is another investment that is going on. Um, And then uh, we also have additional investments for being able to declare policy enforcements to be done on the dependent resource types as well. So, you know, we have some behaviors in Azure where, you know, like storage account, sorry, functions takes dependency on storage accounts. And so storage account gets created by default or, you know, uh, data bricks creates a bunch of resources in the resource group. So we are also, uh, we're also looking into a mechanism for you to control those resource types uh, and what the behavior needs to be for those dependent resource types in Azure. Probably the last pillar of investments we do is around the life cycle of policy. The area of investments that we're going to release next semester, um, which is our upcoming six month, is first of all, we have version management going out. I think a lot of customers have been waiting on the version management. It's going to support both the custom definitions and assignments, but it's, it will, but it will also support on built-ins as well. So now you will have an option to um, choose to mi- choose when you migrate between the versions on the built-ins as well. So version management is something that we're super excited about. Uh, we also have some um, additional investments to make it easier for customers to do a gradual rollout of the policies uh, for uh, you know doing resource location by location basis or uh, specific tags, that sort of deal. So we have a, uh, we have a, what we call a selector on the assignments and exemptions uh, that will be released in the upcoming semester as well. I worked with a customer a few years ago. They would have, uh, they would have killed for versioning of, uh, of policies. Yeah, it was a, like actually, a, no, it's not really versioning, right? It's actually a version number. Like, you know, this is policy version yeah, yeah. number two. You know, uh, you may, may want to say something like, for this particular environment, we're only going to roll out version one of the policy, but for this other environment, we'll roll out version two because of you know, potential compatibility issues or something like that. So, um, man, that's that's great to hear. I didn't even know about that. That's, that's, um, as soon as as soon as you said, it, I kept thinking about this customer. So that's uh, that's really great to hear. So, one thing we always ask our guests is if there was one single thought you'd like to leave our listeners with, uh, what would it be? 
I think the main thing is to explore with the different enforcement effects that we have in policy. I think the power behind what policy can do at the end of the day is all about the uh, what policy language can express. And so um, I would just start exploring on what are the enforcement effects that we support to you know get an idea of what are possible things that you would leverage Azure policy for. Nice. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I mentioned at the very beginning, I'm, a, I'm just a huge fan of Azure policy. I think from a, um, you know, when you're looking at controls, like, you know, preventative controls and detective controls and responsive controls, I mean, Azure policy can kind of fit all three of those areas. Um, but from a preventative control, it, it really is a, um, such a, a magnificent defense, you know, when it's designed correctly and used correctly. Um, and I like the idea that you had of, you know, having it at the, the highest possible level and then using uh, exceptions below that for those areas where, you know, you do need to sort of deviate from the policy. Um, and then with the, uh, the policy versioning coming out, uh, that's really going to solve, you know, so many customer headaches. So, yeah, so thank you so much for joining us this week, Liz. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time, taking the time. I know everyone else on the podcast did as well. Uh, I learned a lot. Again, I've, I've used policy for a long time, but I learned a, I learned a lot on this podcast. That's that's always a good uh, a good thing to see. And um, to all our listeners out there, uh, this is our last podcast for um, 2021. Hopefully, 2022 is going to be a little bit better than 2021. I know everyone's had a bit of a rough time. Um, I know everyone on the podcast that we've had, you know, has been exceedingly busy. Um, I'm off diving in a couple of days uh, with my, with my wife. Uh, I've only taken actually one week vacation this year, so um, I'm going to make make up for a little bit um, over over this break. So anyway, to all of you out there, thank you so much for uh, listening in this year. We've had a great year. This uh, the podcast has really grown um, over the last over the last twelve twelve months. It's way above our anything that we ever expected. Uh, the feedback we've had has been nothing but positive. Um, we've had fantastic guests. Uh, a lot of people have learned a lot through this podcast. So for that, I'm, um, you know, I'm very, very thankful. So again, for all of you out there, thank you so much for listening. Um, take care of yourself. Take some time with your family. And uh, we'll see you next year. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.